Welcome to SCI Science Perspectives, a podcast brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. In this podcast, we'll be discussing emerging literature spanning the full spectrum of SCI research, from discovery to clinical applications. You're listening to a Scholarly Perspectives episode with Dr. Gino Ponza. I'm David. And I'm Marla. And today we'll be discussing the paper titled The Clinical Relevance of Autonomic Dysfunction, Cerebral Hemodynamics, and Sleep Interactions in Individuals Living with SCI, which was published August 2023 in the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. This paper was submitted by Asia's Autonomic Standards Committee. Our guest today is Dr. Gino Panza. Gino is currently an assistant professor in the Eugene Applebaum College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, Department of Healthcare Sciences, Program of Occupational Therapy, and Health Science Specialist, John D. Dingle, VA Medical Center. Gino's bachelor and master's degree are in exercise physiology, and his PhD is in rehabilitation science, where he focused on the cardiorespiratory responses to overground locomotor training in individuals with motor incomplete spinal cord injury. His postdoc was completed in the Department of Physiology in the School of Medicine at Wayne State University, where he focused on the beneficial impact of mild intermittent hypoxia on blood pressure and upper airway functions in individuals with sleep apnea and hypertension. Dr. Panza is now funded to investigate the potential beneficial impact of mild intermittent hypoxia on autonomic dysreflexia and orthostatic hypotension in individuals with motor incomplete SCI. Welcome, Dr. Panza. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Mm-hmm. As are we, Gino, uh, especially as the topic of your paper here uh, addresses three of the more nuanced and yet uh, very relevant to living with spinal cord injury complications that come with this condition. So I think to kick us off here, if you can give us like a lightning round summary of the three categories that we'll be talking about today that interact you know, keeping in mind that the term interactions in the title of the paper, but can you kick us off with uh, like maybe one or two liner on each of the three? Oh, that's, a, that's tough. You know, so I would say currently the, it's a hypothesis, but we think sleep is either augmenting or inhibiting some of the autonomic functions. So it could upregulate or potentially even downregulate. Um, some of the autonomic dysfunction in individuals living with a spinal cord injury. Likewise, we know that there's autonomic control of the blood flow to the brain, um, let alone the uh, systemic vasculature. So generally, the thought is that the direct impact of the lesion on the nervous system obviously has a lot of uh, negative um, outcomes that, you know, most of us study. And really, part of this paper is try to highlight how these are interacting. And what we've presented is that sleep is is likely um, augmenting some of the negative outcomes that we have. So it's really trying trying to investigate a not well studied area in in those living with spinal cord injury. Mm-hmm. Not well studied, and yet none of us don't sleep, right? So I love that this topic's <laughs> being brought up. Um, maybe to start kind of with a, a broad intro to an interaction between two of these three categories. So we've got autonomic dysfunction, cerebral hemodynamics, and sleep. But in the paper, you kick off talking a little bit about cardiovascular autonomic dysfunction and stroke. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? That's a that's a really good one. As, as, as you look 
at least from from my experience as a non-clinician, what you tend to see is as individuals have autonomic dysfunction and the longer that they have it in co in coordination with having the injury longer that these seem these outcomes seem to get worse. And in the animal literature, we we find all sorts of pathophysiological outcomes of stiffening vessels and uh, a lot of other mechanisms that suggest um, a worsening of function over time. So in this one, or in this one, when you really look at it, is you also see the prevalence rate of stroke drastically increase. But you know, it's it, you can't talk about one section without the other one. Unfortunately, once you get to the cerebral hemodynamic section you see that there's an incredible disconnect between alterations in blood pressure that, you know, that most individuals with SCI are getting measured at, at the doctor's office, right? Whether it's a brachial blood pressure or you're in a study with a B2B blood pressure, you start to see a huge disconnect, um, you know, and I'm, I know a decent amount about cerebral hemodynamics, but, you know, I really had to lean on some of the other co-authors that are on the, the paper to really pull all those pieces together because there is such a disconnect. There's differences based on whether you have an injury or don't have an injury. So those without a spinal cord injury and hypertension, their cerebral blood flow is altered compared to those that have a spinal cord injury and low blood pressure. And it seems to also be different when they have a bout of autonomic dysreflexia. The cerebral blood flow seems to be different and compared to somebody with an uh, intact nervous system. So ultimately, what you see is the prevalence rate in stroke is very, very high. And it's really quite scientifically quite simple is there's a glaring gap between that interaction to explain why stroke is so bad or the prevalence rates are so high. You mentioned like the lack of research in this area. And I think, you know, as clinicians, that's something we're always really struggling with in SCI compared to a lot of, you know, other fields to be perfectly fair, um, which is awesome that we're even talking about sleep disordered breathing and, you know, SEI, I think we're getting really down to the nitty gritty, but things that really impact the people we're seeing. But can you talk a little, a little bit about, you know, you mentioned in your paper that clinicians kind of tend to not ignore, but they have trouble discussing or treating autonomic dysfunction in this population do you think like the lack of research is really the issue or is it you know that there's no real standardization of how to care for it or what did you note when you're talking about this paper that made you want to focus on this um my my scientific development it's become quite clear that over the last 10 years Personally, I tend to fall on confounders, right? I don't know. I naturally drift towards, okay, I don't understand this outcome. So what is it? And then you dig into it and you can't find the right answer. Or you, you find a bunch of stuff that is, well, it could be. And, you know, and over here it might be. You run into answers like that. And when I was putting together um, my other SCI grant and this this grant, what I, what I kept falling on is everybody talks about how important autonomic dysfunction is in SCI. There's two major things that I, I fall into is 60% of the individuals remain asymptomatic, right? So when you when you couple that, whether that's true or not, right, you, we get what what is published, right? So maybe it's not quite that much or, or whatever, but either way, it's published in a, a couple cite, uh, citations where it's roughly around 
60%. If we couple that with all of our positive interventions that we have in SCI, people are living longer with SCI, right? That's a good thing. But our evidence in SCI and animal models also shows all of this gets worse over time. So we're, we're, we're improving a lot of things, but we're also revealing other potential issues, right? So we're, we're helping individuals live longer and hopefully at a better quality of life, but we're also in a situation where their autonomic dysreflexia and orthostatic hypertension is getting worse. So just because they're, they're living longer does not mean that there's not another type of pathology that we have to look into. And as, as you know, in the intro we talked about, I originally started with overground locomotor training. We were working with very high functioning individuals and I did not know a lot about blood pressure regulation. You know, I, I had your general exercise science cardiovascular classes and you know when people exercise their blood pressure goes up right and then now we're ex now we're working with people that have motor incomplete spinal cord injury they they could at least stand and initiate a step with or without some type of help from a therapist not an fes device or something like that right and then you start reading and you read about orthostatic or exertional hypotension you're like oh wait a minute like so that there's a problem with with blood pressure in in the exercising realm so I really fell on to, if, if we're not recording it or we're unaware of it, we don't know what the impact that it has on other type of rehab, right? So if somebody has exertional hypotension and, and for some reason somebody doesn't measure, measure it or is unaware of it and they have a physical intervention that they're working with, what if they find no positive income, outcome from that physical intervention? Right? It does not mean that there's not, they're not getting positive adaptations. Is if you don't address the exertional hypotension, you're never going to deliver blood to the exercising muscles, the ones that you can exercise. So you're limiting potential um, physical interventions in individuals with SCI potentially because of some alteration in, in blood pressure. And that's just from the physical side, right? With you know, Jill Weck's work and everybody else's work on cognition and hypotension and you know, some of that stuff that is brought up in here, it's very important, but that's, that's kind of where I, I always fall to is, is if we're not looking at it and it's not well known that so such a high percentage of people have orthostatic hypotension, that it, it's impacting the way that we treat people. And the more that I dig, not as a clinician, the more that I try to find, most of what I find is there's no real prophylactic either, right? So that's another subset of issues that are all con confounding our treatment and research of individuals with the SCI. So I always tend to fall back into that, that realm. And that, that's the importance that I, I see, in it, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's great, Gino. And at the end of this conversation, we'll go to those four recommendations that you guys make in the paper, which are great. For the listeners on the confounders in the paper, figure one does a great job of outlining these with the solid versus dotted line. So just cue you into that and you can go take a look for yourselves as this is an audio only podcast. But Gino, direct quote here from the paper of something you were oh digging into here. Um, when you bring up the prevalence of autonomic dysfunction um, in spinal cord injury, quote, level of injury does not always correlate strongly with autonomic dysfunction. Mm. And a standard criteria for measuring autonomic dysfunction remains elusive. So often I'm thinking is Isinski grade of injury, A, B, C, or D, is this related to autonomic dysfunction? You guys get into this, but can you talk a bit about that when it comes to these different outcomes in the paper? 
I modified that sentence so many times. It's almost embarrassing to say out loud. Um, that's, that's we're the life of a scientist, <laughs> right? You know, um, I know there are individuals that look at various degrees of completeness, incompleteness. Um, I saw recently, I, I, I have not gone in, in this depth, um, not yet anyways, that there are some individuals that don't believe there is such thing as a complete injury. Right. So then now if we look at the type of injury and, you know, you look at whatever outcome you can, whether it's a motor or autonomic in this case, if it's a, a traumatic injury, well, any injury, but more so traumatic, you don't know what tracks are actually damaged. Right. So you have to have an out, outcome for that. And I'm sure everybody listening to this that has worked with those of SEI is if you look at somebody on paper, you're like, okay, you know, 22-year-old male, um, AIS C, C6 level, you can have that same exact piece of paper and somebody comes in in a chair and somebody comes in walking with a single point K. You know, I, I view it that the autonomic system is no, no different in that regard. And if you have enough data points, you'll get some type of, of correlation. But if you look at, to me, the way that I view it as scientifically is if there's enough spread in that data, even though there's a, a relationship there, it's not going to help you determine somebody's autonomic function, right? And and what if, you know, we just had somebody in our, our lab recently that said, you know, I have really bad autonomic dysreflexia and it, it's really sensitive to bladder function. So I we're using a, a different way to elicit AD so we can get a couple different measurements and save, save individuals some time in the lab. He didn't have the largest autonomic dysreflexia in our study group so far at all. And he had no orthostatic hypotension. Everybody else has significant OH and AD, but he was the only one that reports like this impacts me every day. And I always see it. He, they're all motor incomplete C and D and they're all similar injury. So that that's kind of the way that, that I view it. And the, the gold standard, maybe it's a bit of a pipe dream. It, it would be nice to be able to have, um, some type of measure that we at least it has to be reasonable, right? I'm sure if all of us did a, enough invasive research, we could get a, a beautiful measurement that would always work. But, you know, I, I don't know if our PTs and OTs are going to, you know, go through to get that done to help them with their locomotor training that they are doing in the clinic, right? So it's always a, it's always a, a gamble. So there was quite a bit of discussion about that, that line amongst us, authors, but we generally felt comfortable enough to put that in there as, you know, generally speaking, the higher the injury, the more severe it is, the higher the probability of autonomic dysfunction. That That's not the question, but what is the measurement to, to determine how much autonomic dysfunction or is it just AD or is it just OH or autonomic dysreflexia and orthostatic hypertension? So that was kind of the thought process and discussion amongst all of us for for that particular statement. Yeah, and with sleep disordered breathing, as you bring up in the paper, the prevalence is higher in tetraplegia. And yet we yeah. all know, we all know <laughs> that Asia D who has autonomic dysfunction and yet is moving is moving around, so. Yeah, um, I'm sure we'll get into it, but yeah, that's a whole, the sleep disordered breathing is, is the wild, wild west in my opinion right now, research and clinical treatment wise. Like, you know, you have a, you have, quite a few labs looking at it, but it's, you know, prevalence is higher and 
this is how long apneas are and and it's really really bad and then you have nothing else after that right so like we know that it's an issue but that's kind of this paper and the previous one that i published in archives is trying to highlight that that aspect you just absolutely hit the nail on the head of my thoughts when reading the paper you know i think you, you just hit what's so awesome about SEI and what can also be so frustrating about it is, you know, you can have two people where everything, you know, you, you looking at the, say you're just looking at like a pre-admission screening for rehab and everything looks exactly the same. And then you go to the bedside <laughs> and you meet this person. You're like, you're like looking at your paper. You're like, uh, are you Mr. Smith? Like, cause, uh, Mr. <laughs> Jones looks totally different than you. So like, as I'm reading this paper and I'm thinking to myself, wow, I really don't think that much about sleep disordered breathing, especially like in acute rehab. It's not really something, you know, obviously AD orthostatic hypotension is way up high on my list of what I'm thinking about, Oh yeah. but not really sleep disordered breathing. So, you know, if we can't rely on completeness of injury, we can't rely on level of injury, you know, what, is there anything that we can really say like, Hey, we should probably consider sleep disorder breathing in this guy or, you know, maybe we should consider doing a sleep study if that's available to us. Or, you know, is there anything that we can put our finger on to be like, hey, maybe we should look into this? Um, honestly, it's the prevalence rate. So I just read a, um, I'm not really, really strong inside the brain. Like, I'm not going to be talking about different areas of the medulla and the nuclei. That's... <laughs> Not my skill set, but I, I try to read. And I was reading a neurobiology paper for sleep, and they're talking about the prevalence of sleep apnea in the general population. And they're like, oh, you know, roughly 10%. I was like, okay, that was 10% 15 years ago. You start looking up papers now, it's closer to 30%. And then you look in spinal cord injury, and it's exceeding 80% in, in those with tetraplegia. I don't remember the study, but I, I think there's a study that had a, I want to say, between 50 and 100 participants, and 100% of them had sleep apnea. What do you get? I mean, at that point, you kind of, that's like saying, we, we don't always check blood pressure, even though 100% of people with spinal cord injury have AD, right? So if you just, you know, flip the variables, to me, you kind of have to. And what makes it hard is, you know, we're working on a wearable devices paper, and and that is because... I'm being, I don't want to do any more night studies if I don't have to. They are not particularly easy. So for those people that do them, kudos to you because they, they are pretty tough. Is So then let's use a wearable device, right? That's the easiest one. Like, Can we put a wearable device on them? Well, wearable devices and those without injury are pretty much only accurate for total sleep time. Well, total sleep time isn't considered pathological until you exceed nine hours or you don't reach six hours. And they use heart rate to determine... Um, sleep stages. Well, if your injury is above T12, you may not be able to rely on heart rate. So it's probably not very accurate. So at this point, that's, you know, skipping ahead a little bit to the recommendations. That's why it's like, we, we need to find something. And, and my favorite recommendation, sorry for jumping ahead and may alter your timing is actually the third recommendation is for clinicians if you find a research lab, I don't know a single person that does human work that would not immediately agree to a clinician saying, hey, we're going to send you people. Right? Obviously, you have to work out IRB. 
we're going to send you people. Can you do beat to beat blood pressure, EKG and heart rate variability and an orthostatic test and a night study? And we can share that data to improve. I would do that for every single clinician that would ever call. Me. I would do it in a heartbeat. And that, that may be a way to be able to get it done. Now, the acute setting, again, as we talked about before we got on, on the air, is that's, that's not me. I would be mortified in the acute setting. I'd let you guys do your thing. But, you know, I have a device. It, it's fairly expensive, I, I guess, that you can do level two night studies on. And they're really, really easy. Right. And you can, if you get them hooked up right, you can, there's a mobile app for it, a, a tablet. You don't even need to be in the room. It saves everything. It's so it's not, it's not like, you know, our testing for autonomic dysfunction when you come into my lab and, you know, we're here for two hours. We're making you do Valsalvas. We're sitting you up, laying you down, squeezing your leg, putting an electrode on your leg, 10 on your head. Right. We're not doing all of that. It's, you know, you hook them up before they go to sleep and you get a pretty good idea of, of their quality of sleep. Yeah, I think that's awesome. I mean, I, I, there is just no clear answer, right? If there was like <laughs> a, if there was like a, hey, do it like this at six weeks and ch and you check with this, you know, device or whatever, it would make things a lot easier. But just the reality of SCI that it's so heter heter heterogeneous and like there's so many factors that go into it. But I do think it's so it is really important for us to just be keeping that nugget in the back of our mind, hey, sleep disordered breathing could be impacting what's going on here. And, you know, obviously certain things put you at a higher risk factor for it and certain things might put you at a lower risk for it. And, you know, just kind of walking through that every day with each person is going to be really helpful. It definitely added that to my mind. So I definitely appreciate this topic in this paper. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. It's it's nice, and it's nice to know that more than three people have read. Well, at least three people <laughs> on my paper, me and 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 us two or you two on the call. But I I would I would say though be, before that is clearly the treatment of blood pressure and immune function and inflammation and all that in the acute setting is I would argue as a non clinician is probably the number one thing, and I would say once that is established then it's worth the discussion to start talking about the sleep disordered breathing aspect. And I think that's somewhat highlighted in, oh no, I'm forgetting the first author, but David Berlowitz's paper on dipping and non-dipping blood pressure in the, the subacute that we address in the paper. You can kind of see the blood pressure response is different in the acute stages than it is in the other stages. And the disease severity by AHI events per hour may not be the best measure. So that's a whole nother layer to this that's not addressed is disease severity and sleep apnea by AHI may not also be the best measure. Absolutely. All right, Gino, before we ask you to go and summarize the recommendations, if we can, uh, <laughs> we can ask one last sciencey question here that's especially related to figure one. So uh, uh, pardon my pronunciation of this author's name, but Disayanke. Uh, has uh, looks like a systematic review and meta-analysis where they're looking at people without spinal cord injuries, so they're neurologically intact, and they state that 81% of sleep disorder breeding studies, I believe there were 71 studies, showed altered autonomic function, uh, primarily due to increased sympathetic activity, wow. um, assuming that's coming from supraspinal sources, and with less evidence for reduced parasympathetic activity. So this relationship between ANS and SDB in spinal cord injury 
Do you think something is fundamentally different than in the general population? Um, I, I would have to say there, there probably has to be, right? So the other thing with a lot of this, there are papers that show, show increases in muscle sympathetic nerve activity with acute hypoxia, acute sleep deprivation, and, and stuff like that. So clearly there's an impact there. And we use that one instead of that paper just because it was a, a meta-analysis rather than bringing up a bunch of other papers. But I think it's always confounded somewhat when we talk about autonomic dysreflexia. So if you look, there's, I can't remember the author now, but I want to say mid to late 80s, somebody did muscle sympathetic nerve recordings and complete SCI. And they're like, see, there's there's no sympathetic nerve activity below the lesion. And you're like, well, yeah, because the quote unquote power plant is cut off from the circuitry below the lesion. Doesn't mean when you turn on that circuitry that there isn't some level of alteration. So you know, they, they talk about hyperactivity of the sympathetic nervous system. I wouldn't be surprised if the sub-lesion sympathetic reflexes are also upregulated and more, more sensitive because they haven't been being used. So when they are targeted and turned on, that you have these huge bouts of sympathetic responses leading to autonomic dysreflexia. So they're probably similar, but the the upstream effects you know, there, I would assume that they would have to be somewhat altered, but there's also more, when we talk about sleep disordered breathing in here, it's, it's usually, um, I, I try to always be very careful with it and, and highlight when it's generally the, the overarching sleep impairment compared to sleep apnea. But most of the time we just talk about sleep apnea, right? Airway closure, partial closure, leading to hypercapnia and hypoxia, but there are a whole host of other aspects of, of sleep that are also impaired in those with, with SCI. Yeah. Your thought process was exactly what I was thinking as well. <laughs> um, and we know from at least arterial blood pressure measurements, uh, from 24 hour holters that autonomic dysreflexia can occur during sleep. And so, yeah, it's probably something due to these large bouts as opposed to a chronic underlying output of the yeah. SNS. Um, great. Okay. So in wrapping up right here on the scholarly episodes, if you can for us summarize each of the four recommendations made at the end of the paper. Oh, yeah. So um, I, I don't know if it's clear in the paper, but, you know, the first recommendation we talked about education. Um, and if you read education literature, we know that improving people's education doesn't always change the, the outcome. But what we thought was interesting is that some of the key individuals that that work, whether with it's the upper airway, um, nurses, they're not really well educated. But there's not a clear indication of what well educated means. So what we were trying to push here is like very specific knowledge that in this population, this thing, whether it's whether you're looking at OH, AD, or sleep, need to be directly addressed that's outside of, you know, a PowerPoint slide that says people with spinal cord injury above T6 have autonomic dysreflexia or orthostatic hypotension and they don't sleep well. Well, I think it's pretty well known that we, we all know that. So there has yeah, to be yeah, another, yeah. another level. And then um, two and three are kind of really, really combined as, you know, I don't, hopefully my grant reviewers love it. Uh, you know, what I tend to write is a comprehensive physiological review of, of these individuals, right? we have a disruption in the autonomic nervous system. It's going to have upstream and downstream effects, and we don't know what is completely damaged. 
So we have to have a good um, comprehensive analysis of what happens. And now I understand the time in the hospital is not a barrier that I have to tackle in, in, in my lab. But I think it's very important that we try to have improved coordination with research labs because we do have incredibly specific and expensive equipment and we're we're dying to get people in and make measurements and and these could directly impact um, treatment. So that's kind of the recommendation two and three is like we can get a whole battery of very specific knowledge on these individuals physiology, at least at that time, right? Over time, things may change that research labs would, I'm assuming, love to do. I don't know anybody that would say no to, hey, we have 60 people. Can you do ADOH, mitochondrial function and sleep on them? Oh, absolutely. I would love to do a cross-sectional paper at minimum. Absolutely. Right. So that's really the you know, because there's always cost, right? My sleep system was $20,000. My blood pressure was 50000 $55,000. Right? So I understand there's a cost, but, you know, if you guys come to me from the hospital and want to do it, I am I will write the IRB, I will get it set up, and we're hitting the ground running. Um, so I guess that's I guess that's all. The fourth recommendation is an autonomic dysfunction. But I do think a different autonomic test would be, is potentially needed. That would be the only thing that's different for AD. And hopefully, if my preliminary data continues in the path it's going, I know that's not what the talk is on, but we use a different way to elicit AD, and it seems to be pretty successful so far, and it's it's actually really, really easy to do. So um, combine all of that is kind of to get a, a comprehensive physiological assessment of individuals potentially leveraging research labs to do so. So for everybody reading this paper or listening to this podcast episode, you got your call to action um, here to start, you know, working. Send people, I'll do, I will, <laughs> I will measure anything and everything I can for everybody. Absolutely. <laughs> and I'm sure there are plenty of other investigators that would love to do so. Well, that's awesome. I mean, I think that's sort of the whole point of this podcast is to encourage people to, you know, make our care for people living with SCI better and starts with the research side of things and then translating it into clinical practice. So thanks so much for uh, being here with us today. Thanks so much for um, this paper. It's incredible read. It's a great topic. Um, and we really appreciate you being here with us. Thank you. I greatly appreciate the chance to talk about my work and hopefully help help push things forward. Follow your local spinal cord injury scientist. <laughs> <laughs> all right later y'all thank you for listening to this episode of sci science perspectives brought to you by the american spinal injury association the paper discussed in this episode was chosen based on the recommendation of asia's autonomic standards committee the podcast is made possible by the leadership of dr suzanne grow your producer host david mcmillan and marla petrillo our editor abby fox production assistant James Concepcion, and Asia's front office. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please contact us at sciperspectivespodcast at gmail.com.